This year marks the 30th anniversary of the Parker Report, a British government survey which may be seen as the first comprehensive attempt to scrutinise the state of Oriental studies in British universities in the post-colonial period. In 1986, the outlook seemed discouraging. Older, colonial-era Oriental studies departments seemed to have faded. The department at Lancaster had just closed entirely, and the provision of the less salient languages and even Persian was evidently at risk. Student recruitment was unsatisfactory, both in volume and quality. Coordination between universities was poor or non-existent, and it was clear that the Oriental Studies field generally was failing to serve the nation's requirement for experts who could be of assistance to commerce, intelligence gathering and diplomacy. The recommendation to the University Grants Committee was to seek to double student places and reinforce staffing levels accordingly. As the report concluded, much of the system is at risk, and this inquiry took place at the 11th hour. The costs of keeping the system going are small compared with the potential benefits. It is absurd to let it run down. Thirty years after this rather condign warning, we find ourselves in a situation where, by a superficial assessment of the existing major departments, little seems to have changed. The need to service commerce and diplomacy remains, and indeed, since 9-11 and subsequent crises has intensified. There is still no overarching body to enable national coordination, despite the existence of not one but two professional associations for academics in the field of Islamic studies and the informal collaboration of some colleagues in the relevant Higher Education Academy Subject Centre. The calibre of students and admission standards in this underpopulated field continues to give some concern. Furthermore, the number of teaching vacancies, at least in the United Kingdom, remains lamentably small when set beside the number of job seekers. It is a frail discipline. Another sign of the rather static state of our field in the United Kingdom is the stability of student motivations. The Parker Report was followed by a book-length survey by Durham University School of Education entitled The Future of Arabic Studies in Britain. As well as confirming the report's verdict on a stagnant and even declining discipline, the Durham authors offered the first detailed attempt at a student profile based on interviews with staff at the major departments. The conclusion was that British candidates for Islamic Studies degrees fell into four categories. Firstly, there are white public school types with an interest in a career in the Foreign Office or the British Council. Secondly, white pupils partly brought up in the Middle East by expatriate parents. Thirdly, British Muslims of subcontinental heritage. And fourthly, second-generation British Arabs interested in learning more about their half-forgotten roots. Here again one notes the familiarity of the profile. These four groups can be said to predominate among Arabic studies applicants in many British universities even today. Behind these superficial continuities, however, there lurks a deep current of categoric change. One aspect of this is so familiar as not to require much adumbration. The receding of government funding and the redirection of the academy towards the servicing of the economy or of government departments where inputs and outputs are financially quantified and assessed. Professor Stefan Collini of Cambridge's English faculty has written of the breathtaking scale of the dismantling of the public character of higher education. On this view, university education is slowly being turned into a commodity, its every movement quantified and marketised. Academics are increasingly treated as service providers by students who borrow to learn and are increasingly concerned to receive value for money. 
Research must be in the public domain to qualify for inclusion in quality assurance exercises on which preferment depends and on whose outcomes departments rely for funding. One fact says it all. In the United Kingdom, universities are now governmentally handled not by an education ministry, but by the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills. For Gavin de Costa, in the modern British university, finance is the chief criterion, without any organic vision of the relation of the different disciplines, without any shared values regarding the good of men and women, or concerning what truth might possibly be. Islamic studies, historically classed as a significant division of the paradigmatic humanities discipline of Oriental studies, is thus facing winnowing winds as resources move to departments of law, science and economics. Pushing against this, however, is another function of the new context of instrumentalism, the security agenda. Of this, the Parker report was barely conscious. Today, however, Islamic studies is being asked to emerge from its traditional philological and historical concerns and prove its utility in the current public conversation about Muslim radicalism at home and abroad. This new preoccupation, sharpened by the London suicide bombings of July 2005, burst upon the department's consciousness in 2006, when bemused faculties were told by Higher Education Minister Bill Rammel that they needed to be aware of what he called wrong-headed influences on students. The idea in Whitehall seemed to be that an Islamicist must be a sort of Islamist, and that the Dons were not doing their bit to counter radical interpretations of religion. To pursue this curious narrative, government chose to commission another report on Islamic studies, this time with a view to stamping out extremism. The background seemed to be local echoes of campaigns, mostly with transatlantic roots, which found some Islamic studies lecturers too sympathetic to their subject matter. In the US, groups like Campus Watch and Thinme Watch were inviting students to report political and religious views advanced by professors, which could be considered sympathetic to Islamism or to a conservative Muslim perspective. Somehow the UK government had caught the scent of this. The field's reaction was swift and pertinacious. Edinburgh University invited representatives of the major departments to an Islam on campus conference, chaired by Yasser Suleiman and Ayman Shihadeh. Predictably, the assembled professors expressed dismay at Rammel's remarks, which indicated a remarkable lack of official consciousness about the actual content and purpose of university teaching of Islam. It seemed ironic that the same Orientalist establishment, which prided itself on taking a critical historicist view of Islam, and which typically distanced itself from insider perspectives, could be regarded by government as a potential channel for the spread of extremist ideologies. Orientalism seemed caught between the twin fires of a Saidian charge of Eurocentrism and anti-Muslim bias, on the one hand, and government and journalistic accusations of a philo-Muslim agenda on the other. One thing was clear, the field had come a long way since the Parker report. One outcome of this uncomfortable dialogue between Mandarins and Orientalists was the decision by the Higher Education Funding Council in 2007 to designate Islamic studies as a strategically important subject, a label which attracted a measure of additional public funding to the discipline. These conversations did, however, galvanise the field to reflect usefully upon itself and its apparent crisis of identity. The UK, in fact, had not a single department of Islamic studies. Instead, everything that Marshall Hodgson would have characterised as Islamicate was spread over a wide landscape of faculties, including history, anthropology, politics, economics, music. In fact, Islamic studies seemed to be everywhere and yet nowhere. Typically, however, it clustered in two rather imprecise subject areas, 
oriental studies and religious studies. Although government, undergraduate applicants and many in the wider society thought they knew exactly or approximately what Islam comprised, it seemed clear that for the academy Islam is so elusive a concept that no one knows where to put it. The subject area most in the public eye in the environment of the war on terror turned out to be the one which universities found most difficult to categorise. We may again only briefly seek to diagnose this. Firstly, Oriental studies, in which the canon of Islamic texts was processed according to forensic techniques whose roots lay in large part in the genealogy of classics departments, had been gravely weakened by Edward Said's 1978 squib, Orientalism. By making the obvious point that some founding figures of the discipline share the general cognitive frame of an imperial age, Said hazardously undermined a discipline whose contributions to the codicology, editing, translation and interpretation of Islam's classics had in fact been frequently helpful and rigorous. Reading his polemic almost 40 years on, one is troubled by his attack on Louis Massignon, for instance. Was it not Massignon's vindication of Muslim devotion and religious experience which persuaded his friend Montini, when he became Pope, to bless the Vatican II constitutions which overturned centuries of anathema and contempt? Daniel Varisco and Robert Irwin have decisively shown how several of the iconic Orientalists who appear in Said's crosshairs played an important role in improving Western perceptions of Muslim texts and societies. Said's legacy was a largely noxious one, whose Foucaultian cynicism about agendas offered few ways forward, but which damned most of what was valuable in Oriental studies, to the extent that some departments even found it expedient to change their names. In the name of Muslim politics or third world solidarity, students routinely applied a hermeneutic of suspicion to the Orientalist project. This, coupled with research assessment criteria which valued monographs over editions and translations, precipitated a steep decline in the precious output of sources which had been the indispensable bedrock of everything else in Islamic studies. Our field, which already had failed to seriously compete with, say, Hindu studies in its commitment and capacity to make its canon publicly available, shrank in fear before the politically correct but misinformed Saidian Jeremiah. The decline of classical Orientalism was contemporaneous with the rise of a phenomenon unknown to the authors of the Parker Report, Islamic studies as embedded within the institutions and categories of religious studies. This too has been a hotly contested discipline. However, research assessment statistics consistently suggest that Islamic studies produces better outcomes in this new setting than in the more traditional Oriental studies or area studies context. In 2010, the Higher Education Academy produced a new report, mainly statistical in nature, which revealed how substantive this shift has been. A survey of departments with 20 or more modules related to Islamic studies showed that most are now delivered not in traditional Arabic and Middle Eastern studies departments, but in the context of religious studies. Specifically, 21% of Islam-related teaching is now embedded within religious studies, 16% in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies, 12% in politics, government and international relations, and 9% in history. So much for the British picture. In Australia, a rather different pattern has emerged. An early concern with the study of Southeast Asian Islam has now been reshaped in favour of a more broad-based approach, which again, and perhaps more than in Britain and the US, bears in mind the presence of local Muslim communities, issues and students. The National Centre for Excellence in Islamic Studies in Melbourne, launched in 2008, presents a resolutely contemporary raft of modules, including Islamic banking, 
Islamic media and Islamic law in a changing world. There is also a community experience program which requires undergraduates to experience mosques and Muslim community activities in the Melbourne area. The centre also serves as a platform for joint statements by Australian Muslim organisations, including the Australian National Imams Consultative Forum, whose infrastructure and media representation is largely handled within the centre. Contrast this with the situation in the United States. The Parker Report had already noted the American government's policy of nationally coordinating the subject area. Thanks to central surveillance and concern, between 9-11 and the 2008 financial crisis, an average of 50 new Islam-related posts a year was being created. Again, as with the British case, we note a three-way tug-of-war between, firstly, traditional Orientalism, directed towards a canon of largely pre-modern texts, secondly, area studies, and thirdly, religious studies. Again, the latter represented a contentious but significant area of new investment. Charles Adams, in a 1974 article, had complained of the almost complete lack of synergy between religious studies and the professional Islamicists. The year before, he commented, he had given the only Islam-related paper at the annual conference of the American Academy of Religion. In 2016, by remarkable contrast, AAR designated separate groups to coordinate presentations and seminars in not one but several Islam-related fields, of which the most populated seemed to be the Islam, Gender and Women group, the Islamic Mysticism group, the Quran group and the Contemporary Islam group, all subsumed under an entire study of Islam section. Richard Martin, in his useful 2010 paper, Islamic Studies in the American Academy, has already mapped and conditionally celebrated this shift. But the proliferation disguises a far larger dissemination of Islamic studies through the AAR platform and curricula. One example is the Scriptural Reasoning Group, which has evolved over the past ten years from the Textual Reasoning Group, an all-Jewish group of philosophical exegetes responding to Peter Oakes's work on pragmatic and postmodern second readings of the Pentateuch, which then absorbed Christian scholars and then included Muslims. Many of these papers appear in the online journal of scriptural reasoning, which includes the philosophical work of Muslim scholars such as Basit Koshal, Yamina Marmer and Isra Yazajoglu, as well as major Jewish and Christian thinkers. This year's panel had a strong Cambridge connection. In fact, a Cambridge-Yale axis has existed for some years now, serving to introduce Islamicists, including several of Peter Oakes's leading pupils, to the wider world of religious studies and philosophy of religion. Reciprocally, the strong interdisciplinarity of scriptural reasoning and its emphatically seminar-based and dialogical research style has introduced leading religious studies and theology professors to Islamic studies. This year's panel was led by Simin Zal, Daniel Weiss and Nick Adams, whose own philosophical work has been at pains to incorporate Islamic texts and references in a way which has notably shifted the style of contemporary discourse in the philosophy of religion. We confront, therefore, a situation of great vibrancy, flux and diversification. The traditional disciplines of philology have not been replaced or threatened by the new evolutions in the field. In fact, they appear to be in rude health. Professor Neuwert's Corpus Chronicum project in Berlin and the more general exuberance of the higher criticism, as it calls itself, of the Quranic text is only one case in point. The thriving of the study of Islamic philosophy and the steady growth of the study of Kalam furnishes another instance. Fears that governmental or even journalistic preoccupations will tilt the field in the direction of the mass production of domesticated Muslim leaders or polyglot spies or community cohesion activists are simply not borne out by the facts, 
and we should set our parochial fearfulness aside. Instead, what we seem to be witnessing is the growth of the study of a major world civilization towards the scale which is appropriate to it in a modern university, given its importance, diversity and inherent interest. We've already referred to the teasing fact that Islamic studies mainly inhabits two subject areas which are under very considerable cultural and political strain, Oriental studies and religious studies. The future of the former is likely to be secured not by further polemics for or against Said, but by the academic eminence and evident indispensability of research outcomes, and also, more prosaically, by the success of faculty chairs in raising funds. Religious studies, by contrast, is now experiencing a more recent episode of post-colonial guilt and identity crisis. Talal Asad, Robert Orsi and Tomoko Masuzawa have all sought to deconstruct religious studies as an explicitly or implicitly Eurocentric enterprise replete with false dialectics and illicit reifications. Masuzawa's influential monograph, The Invention of World Religions, is a particularly fierce example. She writes this. In the social sciences and humanities alike, religion as a category has been left largely unhistoricized, essentialized, and tacitly presumed immune or inherently resistant to critical analysis. The reasons for this, failing on the part of the academy, this general lack of analytic interest, and the obstinate opacity of the subject of religion are no doubt many and complex. But the complexity may begin to yield critical pressure if we are to subject this discursive formation as a whole to a different kind of scrutiny, a sustained and somewhat sinuous historical analysis. Unquote. So has our field migrated from the unfashionable rubric and agenda of Oriental studies to board another sinking ship? The outcome of the debate is unclear. There are some who wish to disaggregate both and distribute staff over departments of history, sociology, politics and linguistics. Others, such as Russell McCutcheon, make a nuanced but forceful case for the validity of the religious studies category, as long as one remembers that all reifications are self-imposed and not inherent. Still others, like our own Aaron Hughes, inveigh mightily against anything that might smack of a failure of reductionism. It is here that the cultural wars seem most acute and perhaps most reactive to the political pressures on the discipline. One recalls Sarah Strums's polemic directed against the German government's policy of establishing several new departments for Islamic theology, seen as Glaubenslehre of some instrumental and politicised kind. For Strums, Muslims are generally incapable of maintaining the critical distance which the academy, and paradigmatically the Humboldtian German academy, requires for the unfettered discharge of its calling. For historical reasons, the taxpayer may subsidise Catholic and Lutheran academics, but Muslims should not be granted the same status until they have passed through what the late Pim Fortuyn called the laundromat of modernity. For Strumser, Muslims are not reliably capable of what she calls critical non-sectarian research. For now, at least, they should pitch their tents outside the faculty walls. This raises what is perhaps the largest and stickiest of questions confronting those who try to welcome the current leakage of Oriental studies into other disciplines. The debate is not solely a German one. In the United Kingdom, no one seems sure whether it's discriminatory to assume that theology faculties are by default places where Christians talk about God to one another. Take, for example, Colin Gunton's volume, The Cambridge Companion to Christian Doctrine. No one seems concerned by the fact that all its contributors are writing from a rather exuberant faith position. The faculties often still reflect this. But in modern British cities, where engagé Muslims increasingly outnumber their Christian counterparts, 
This monopoly is clearly a survival from a much older culture. But should the response be to abolish theology as an academic discipline and thereby to avert the question of definitions and inclusivity? If nobody at all is allowed to practice Glaubensleere in a modern university, then Strums's polemic becomes otiose. Against this project of diminishing rather than accommodating a diversity, even a clashing diversity of scholarly paradigms, let us consider, firstly, Strums's assumption that Muslims generally cannot be trusted to entertain critical discourses. This is in turn predicated on the assumption that traditional departments of Oriental studies are all populated by value-neutral and unproblematically objective hearers of Wissenschaft, but a survey of the academic record may induce scepticism on these grounds. Not to be Muslim is not necessarily to be an adherent of a putative Enlightenment view from nowhere of the type that Hughes thinks should be required. In practice, our field is full of advocacy of various kinds, pro-Palestinian, pro-Islamic, pro-deconstruction, pro-socialist, pro-Armenian, pro-Catholic, and yet this has constituted part of its polemical dynamism. Where would the field's richness and energy of interest be without the eccentric pieties of Georges Anouati or the Marxian stubbornness of Maxime Rodinson or the Christian campaigning zeal of Christoph Luxemburg and Gabriel Said Reynolds? We've long ago let go of the Husserlian dream of bracketing out our own worldview in favour of more realistic and also humanly enriching acknowledgement of our situatedness. Asad, McCutcheon and others have remarked in detail on this. Instead of claiming the superhuman status of objective and critical exegetes, suspended by Richard Rorty's skyhooks, high above the messy data and its own traditional advocates and guardians, we now acknowledge our own situatedness, while recognising also that in many subdivisions of our craft that this cannot be particularly salient. One can write on, say, Mamluk coinage, or Ottoman defter registers, or Abbasid belles lettres, or Raz's views on angels without it mattering where one stands on the truth of the Quranic revelation, or the truth of the Roman Catholic Church, or of atheism. This does not, however, quite crack the problem of the validity of an Islamic Glaubenslehre, conceived as an avowedly insider project in a university setting. To deal with this, it would be helpful first to recognise that Salafist fideism apart, Islam's truth claims are in fact thought to stand or fall on judgments which can in principle be recognised or ratified in the secular academy. For Asharism, and particularly the Maturidi tradition, inherited by many German, Turkish and subcontinental British undergraduates, unexamined faith is either invalid or sinful. فَكُلُّ مَنْ قَلَّدَ فِي التَّوْحِيدِ إِيمَانُهُ لَمْ يَخْلُ مِنْ تَرْدِيدِ as Al-Bajuri puts it. It's interesting to recall that the very first stirrings of the modern German university took place at the hands of the commission appointed by the Duke of Weimar in 1784, chaired by no less a personage than Goethe. The ensuing new curriculum at Jena, which anticipated the Humboldtian revolution, emphasised the autonomy of truth free from any guild of theologians or other obscurantists. Yet it was the same Goethe who wrote this, Something of that faith is held in us all. Then the Mohammedans begin their instruction in philosophy, with the doctrine that nothing exists of which the contrary may not be affirmed. Thus they practice the minds of youth by giving them the task of detecting and expressing the opposite of every proposition, from which great adroitness in thinking and speaking is sure to arise. Certainly, after the contrary of any proposition has been maintained, doubt arises as to which is really true. But there is no permanence in doubt, it incites the mind to closer inquiry and experiment, from which, if 
rightly managed, certainty proceeds, and in this alone can man find thorough satisfaction. You see that nothing is wanting in this doctrine, that with all our systems we have got no further, and that generally speaking no one can get further. Unquote. Somehow Goethe had heard rumours of the rationalising Hanafi or Saul of the great Ottoman academies. In this genesis moment of the modern university, it's legitimate to propose a potential convergence between Glaubenslehre of a rigorous dialectical Kalam type with the emergent ideology of a privileged public reason. German professors are Kant's children, taking their cue from Kant Streiter Fakultäten, in which he mapped the due grounds of any valid discourse in philosophy and the other humanities. British universities have largely followed the same programme. Kant's concern is to detach reason and its academic pursuit from ecclesial entanglement. One must not subscribe academically to any position which is heteronymously supplied in advance by a denomination, heritage or magisterium. Thinkers can reach what conclusions they will, including religious and confessional conclusions, but only on the basis of public reason, pursued in collaboration with similarly unfettered colleagues. Wissenschaft is a community's project of public reason, construed as something which in principle could embrace all of society. With the postmodern withering of the brave Kantian assurances about autonomous reason and the possibility of truth being discerned through the weaving together of the discoveries of a community of free minds, we find, for instance, the protest of Mike Higton in his book A Theology of Higher Education. For Higton, quote, the university that they envisage does not actually allow each citizen to speak on his own behalf if he is not allowed to speak as the member of the particular positive religious and secular traditions that have shaped him. The very stricture that the romantic theorists erect in order to preserve free sociality is one that makes it impossible. Close quote. Having pointed to this highly restrictive axiom of the Kantian model, Higton then laments what he sees as the near collapse of the Enlightenment vision of the university as a coherent community of seekers after public truth. The pursuit of truth has recently been set at the margins, either due to the monetizing of the academy, or because of hyper-specialization and weak interdisciplinarity, or because of a general postmodern culture which in the pursuit of truth is dismissed as a fool's errand. For Higton, quote, Fragmented expertise is the coin of such a university, not truth. Any strong version of a commitment to truth, strong enough, that is, to guide the university past the lure of problematic funding sources, to drive it beyond fragmentation, to offset to the temptations of the purely pragmatic and utilitarian, turns out to flounder when removed from the water of robust conceptions of the human good, and so to be among those things bound eventually to become extinct in the realm of attenuated public reason. Unquote. Stanley Hauerwas has further pursued this discussion of the failure of the Humboldtian Academy to secure the pursuit of public truths on the basis of a thesis that universities require a symbiosis with what Alastair MacIntyre calls a learned public. Universities pursue truth in order to train students in virtuous service to society. Kant's assumption was that this wider society would naturally in exhibit a care for truth, a common coin in his world. In the 21st century, however, this common coin has been debased or abolished in favour of other forms of credit. For Rowan Williams, speaking of the British case, quote, It isn't clear what the university's paymasters think the university is there for. They only know that they wanted to give value for money. Unquote. For Hauerwas, a university able to resist the mystifications legitimated by the abstractions of our social order 
will depend on a people shaped by fundamental practices necessary for truthful speech. For Hauerwas and also Higton, the radical decay of a general public sense of what truth might be underlines the legitimacy and even the importance of a theological project within the academy. Sigmund Maumann's culture of liquid modernity cannot supply the external measures of the public good which the Enlightenment academic schema presumes. For Hauerwas, the Church contributes by developing a people capable of bearing the burden of honour and truthfulness, a people without which the university, as I conceive its task, cannot exist. Higton further accepts that such a blood transfusion into a truth-starved, instrumentalised modern academy cannot be a purely Christian perquisite. Thinkers of all traditions must offer their own capacities for the production of virtue and of the incentive to seek truth. The fact that we are startled or inclined to cynicism when told that the modern university began as a project for the seeking of public truth reminds us how far we have travelled from that ideal. In the context of Islamic studies, however, it should be evident that the remnants of the Wissenschaftsideologie, which demands that I participate only as myself and not as, for example, a Marxist or a Christian or an Eshari, are no longer sufficient to suffocate the plurality of a modern Islamic studies programme or to limit its horizons. Heteronomy is here to stay.